This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Saturday, July 29th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Regulators have a tough time keeping up with technological innovation, and often regulatory responses to innovation serve to protect incumbents. And even if they're not protecting incumbents, that regulation can still be ham-handed, even as it's heavy-handed. Virginia Postrel is a columnist at Bloomberg. We discussed regulation versus innovation this week. A column you wrote many, many years ago uh, made this sort of simple point that I think as we've advanced, and this was many years ago, as technology has advanced, the point has become stronger. And that is that uh, certain technologies uh, can be deployed so widely, so quickly, that they are able to develop a constituency before uh, regulators or other government entities or even uh other rent-seeking competitors can really jump in and slow it down or stop it. And I believe the example that you used was um, small satellite dishes like DirecTV or Dish Network that people had attached to their homes. Uh, here, I don't want to say how many years later, several years later. Many years later, decades, uh, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. You know, how do you evaluate that thought? Well, I, I think we've seen this in recent years as a deliberate strategy. And for example, with Lyft and Uber, uh, they started out essentially saying they were doing something different from what they were really doing. Um, Lyft said it was sort of volunteer ride-sharing with voluntary payments, but they weren't really voluntary. And I forget, Uber, I think, did it through people who were uh, limos. So it was automatically, they were, this is just an on-demand limo sort of thing. But they essentially, they found tiny little loopholes that were not really big enough to be sustained long-term, but enabled them to get started and then once they got started, they had such good – people were so enthusiastic about the services that then when they went to various states uh, to get some kind of recognition legally, they were able to overcome the opposition. I mean, not everywhere. It didn't happen in Paris. There are certain uh, – it's famously in Austin, Texas. It's a problem. But in general, uh, they – overcame the inevitable opposition of both reflexive regulators and competitors who were enjoying various kinds of taxi monopolies by establishing this giant constituency very quickly. And in that case, many of those constituents were, in fact, the kinds of people who make regulations. I mean, certainly you see that in this town in Washington, where I am right now, is Back in the day, people used to take taxis and, and the subway, and now everybody's taking Lyft and Uber. So that's a good example of it. Uh, Airbnb is similar. Um, it, there have been – Airbnb is less unprecedented because before Airbnb, there were non-technologically uh, sort of mediated temporary rental programs uh, for vacation homes, but they tended to be in very touristy areas and it wasn't a room. It was a, a dedicated um, rental flat. 
And they've created constituencies for this. And I was in Italy recently and uh, talking with a guy there uh, in a free market think tank in Milan. And he said he thinks Italians understand why Airbnb ought to be free because they all like to have second homes and rent them out. <laughs> so, and he was hopeful that that might help advance the argument in other dimensions and other uh, situations as well. What is the downside of that? Is there one? Well, the downside of it is that it's not – what we would like to have would be something that was more truly permissionless. That is, you would be able to enter a market without breaking the law or finding a lame loophole and just do your business and either find a market or not find a market. This – is a, a phenomenon that sort of recognizes the regulatory impulse and the regulatory apparatus. And it often requires a certain kind of entrepreneur who maybe is a jerk as well as maybe a little lawless to, to just roll over the status quo. It does not – it doesn't uh, – encourage respect for the law. It doesn't encourage respect for the political process because it makes things too it, – it creates contempt for those uh, by making it difficult to do things that people want. It would seem to also um, undermine the ability of the entrenched or the incumbent businesses to uh, adapt that is, if, if they, they believe that a law is actually prohibiting certain kinds of competition, their ability to adapt would seem to, uh, to be hampered. Potentially. Potentially. I tend to think that incumbent businesses are more um, – It's the law is secondary to their just customary ways of thinking and ways of doing business. So it's true that in certain industries, people get used to having certain kinds of regulatory barriers to entry and assume that those things will always be there. But I think it's more common for people just to be used to doing business the way they're doing business. And the example I always use of this is uh, in the 1990s, a guy from the sort of deal-making real estate business named uh, Barry Steinhardt went into the hotel business. He started Starwood Hotels. And because he was from outside, he was a business traveler, he asked questions that weren't asked in the hotel industry, like, why are we spending all this money on an armoire to put the TV in now that TVs are getting smaller and more attractive? Maybe we should put it in the, in the bed and that sort of thing. Uh, this is not to say that people from outside always know better. Often they have not got a clue. Uh, but sometimes people in an industry just get set in their ways. In terms of steps to get to that permissionless world where innovation can just happen and the profits and losses are what they are, what do you see as step ah, one? Good. Uh, well, that's a very good question and partly I I think that people need to think about the cost of regulation and by which I don't mean necessarily the dollars and cents cost, although often that is a factor. We have an impulse to say 
oh, I don't like this. Let's pass a law and let's make it better. And I, a good example is in the housing market. We have these problems in cities like Los Angeles where I live and San Francisco, the Bay Area is famous for this and Washington and all the uh, many, many major metropolitan areas have a problem with housing being increasingly expensive and, and making it impossible for anybody who's not rich basically to live there. And uh, that hampers the productivity. Uh, it hurts individuals. It also hampers the whole country's productivity because if you're – say, a bartender, you're going to be a more productive bartender in an area that is more generally productive, but you can't live there because you can't afford the housing. Okay. So why is the housing so expensive? Well, people like to talk about zoning. Um, and zoning obviously has some effects on the housing market. But a lot of it is little things that everybody thought were a good idea at the time. Uh, so for example, in Los Angeles, we have rules, uh, which I remember distinctly when they were passed in the, the 80s, saying this is not a good idea, people, uh, that require that you have a certain number of parking places for every unit or it may even be every bedroom in a new multifamily housing unit. Well, the result of that is that when you build a new apartment or condo building, even if it's a relatively small one, you have to dig a garage. And that costs tens of thousands of dollars per parking place, which, of course, gets added on to the cost of, of the unit. And that's just one tiny little regulation. And, and what we've done is we've piled these on in different layers of, of uh, approvals and inspections and hearings and all of these sorts of things. And every single one of those things had a reasonable-sounding justification behind it. But nobody was thinking about the cumulative effects. And even, say, going back to the parking thing, the assumption there is that everybody's going to have one car per driver. Um, and so we need a lot of parking because otherwise there won't be enough room on the street. Well, what if we have self-driving cars? What if we have... Uh, people living near transit. What if, like me, people just start walking a lot uh, because the traffic is bad? Uh, maybe we won't need – what if we have an aging population or people living uh, – fewer people per unit? Um, lots of things can change and you've put this very specific regulation in place. So going back to the question of how do you get to permissionless innovation, there is no magic – there is no magic thing where you get to allow it. But what I would like to see is people work to change their mentality to think about the cumulative effect of these regulations and also to think about the fact that things change over time. And lots of the regulations that we pass uh, create categories that fit one state of the world but not the other state of the world. Now, in a case like Uber and Lyft, maybe that category also creates a loophole and, and people can innovate. But many times it creates a, such a rigid category that there's no space for innovation, that if you don't fit in that category, if you think of something that hasn't been tried before or maybe that's now made technologically possible that wasn't possible before, it doesn't fit. So th those, I mean, I'm, 
look, I, I deal in the world of ideas and, and persuasion, and I'm trying to think about how we should think about these things. And I think these are the ways to start to think about change, how, how, what happens when things change, and also to think about the cumulative cost of what seem to be reasonable restrictions when they're proposed. Very rarely do people suggest a regulation without some kind of plausible-sounding justification. They don't say, we're going to pass this because we're mean or we're going to pass this because we want to stamp out innovation. They very rarely even say, we want to pass this because we want to protect the incumbents. Sometimes they do, but, but that's fairly rare. There's usually some public-spirited justification. And the, the trick is to think about Okay, let's 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 grant let's grant that you have good intentions. But what are the things you're not thinking about and what are the things that might happen that are in in states of the world that are different from today? For some reason I'm thinking of a regulation that Virginia had a few years back. They taxed uh, liquor and wine differently. And someone discovered that these regulations uh, if you looked at them in total made sangria illegal. <laughs> Yeah, that's a and so, and, and so uh, the Virginia lawmakers uh, and I'm I'm making a point here at some point I'll get to it I'm sure uh, Virginia lawmakers decided well let's carve out an exemption for sangria right right and not they, let's reconsider this regulatory regime that we have for wine and beer and why we or wine and liquor and why we tax them differently and why we regulate them differently right and another example of that that I have in my book The Future and Its Enemies is when when Starbucks went into San Francisco, which was fairly late in its development, it wasn't it didn't start there or anything. Um, it found that it couldn't locate the kind of neighborhood gathering places that it had developed its strategy around this third place strategy. It had to only locate like on major boulevards and and not really in neighborhoods because, there was a law on the books that was designed to favor uh, stores over and, and keep restaurants from proliferating. And it said that you could sell food, but people couldn't sit down. Uh, so they could sell to-go. If they wanted to open a place to sell to-go coffee, that would be okay, but not a place where you could sit with your laptop and work and talk to people and all that. Well, so by that time, Starbucks was a pretty big company and had clout and people wanted Starbucks in their neighborhood. And they knew what it was. So they went to the city government and they got a carve out. And just like the sangria exception, it, it created an exception for, I think they call it like coffee bars. <laughs> but but you know, what happens with the next thing? And also, because I've seen this same phenomenon with, with rules that for some reason, hate restaurants and like stores in my own general neighborhood uh, in the Westwood Village near UCLA. Well, there's a secular trend away from brick-and-mortar retailing. Uh, people are buying more on – there are fewer stores. But people are eating out more and more and food is the more and more important thing. So if you put on the books, you had this notion that we like stores and we don't like restaurants, you're going to end up with a lot of vacant storefronts. Unrelated to any of this, uh, you wrote a column recently about 
sort of a spillover cost associated with the legalization of marijuana in many states. And that is, and I've noticed it in Washington, D.C. Uh, um, I'm sure other, I've, I've noticed it when I've been in Denver. Uh, and that is, it smells like pot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. I. And, and that just, it, you know, you, you don't necessarily see it coming, but there it is. Yeah, and this is not the crisis of the world, but as someone who supports legalization and doesn't like the smell on the sidewalks, I, I, I actually – this started with a Facebook post. I just wrote, I support legalization of marijuana, but I wish pot smokers wouldn't stink up the street. And there was this huge outpouring of response from people who mostly agreed with me and mostly were, in fact, in favor of legalization and some of whom use marijuana themselves. Uh, but the problem is if you're a smoker, whether you smoke marijuana, whether you smoke cigarettes, um, tobacco, you become used to that smell and you don't realize how stinky it is <laughs> to other people. And so this was a column. I was not calling for any kind of regulation. I made it very clear that I support legalization. I, But I do fear that this spillover effect may hamper the cause of future legalization because people will go to places where marijuana is legal or decriminalized, more common, and they will go, yuck, I don't like this. Uh, let's keep it illegal, which is terrible because you're talking about ruining people's lives for smoking pot um, in order that you can walk down the sidewalk and, and not smell it. And that is totally disproportionate. But I think that pot smokers and uh, marijuana users, uh, because they don't necessarily have to smoke it, uh, need to be a little more considerate. Um, and part of this is just the problem of this is something new. In the past, people didn't smoke in public because it was illegal. Uh, norms haven't really developed about when and where and, and in what quantities to smoke. Um, so that this is partly a matter of just giving it a little time. I got some pushback from people like, you're trying to stigmatize marijuana. Well, no, I'm not. If anything, I'm trying to further the cause of legalization. But realistically, if people are accosted constantly with this very heavy smell as they walk down the street, there's going to be a backlash, and that is not a good thing. What of the argument that, look, you go out in public, you need to roll with the punches a little bit? I am sympathetic with that argument, and I have – I mean, it actually is how I live my life, even though I kind of gripe about it. But I am sympathetic with that argument. I have made that argument in many, uh, many contexts. If you're complaining about noise and you live in a city, you know, maybe you should move to the suburbs because cities are noisy, this sort of thing. And there's, there's some truth to that, but it works both ways. And so what I'm just arguing for is – for people to think about the fact that the smoke has to go somewhere and not everybody else likes the smell. So if you can mitigate it in some ways uh, to try and do that. And there are other ways to consume marijuana besides lighting up a cigarette. Virginia Postrel is a columnist at Bloomberg. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 